Welcome to Behind the Scenes with Brian, the podcast covering everything from engineering, mining, and mine waste management to whatever else may be on our minds. Pop in your headphones and don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share. And now, here is your host, Brian Ulrich. everyone, this is Brian. This is Behind the Scenes with Brian, and today I am joined by Heather Kamensky. Heather, how are you today? I'm good, thank you, Brian. Good, good. And where where are you right now? I am in the very cold, cold location of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Um, it's minus uh, 35 today, so it's a rather bitter day. Yeah, yeah. So I got my master's in Edmonton, and I I know those days very well. I used to listen to a radio station that told the wind chill factor in the units of watts per square meter. And I couldn't ever really, I mean, to me, it's like a kilopascal. I wouldn't know a kilopascal if it bit me on the butt or a wind chill factor that's 2000 watts per square meter. Yep. Yep. Although you definitely feel them. Yeah. Well, they, they would usually translate it and say, exposed flesh freezes solid in 20 seconds or something like that and like mm, yeah i can i think i can still dash across the quad <laughs> yes we we have two buildings uh our lab is in one building and our office is in another building and so yeah today's the kind of day where we don't necessarily dash between the buildings we actually put the jacket on but most of the rest of the time it's like yeah it's only minus 20 we're fine we can just <laughs> run between the buildings yeah <laughs> I, I do remember one of the radio personalities that said it was minus 18 and he says, people, that's not that cold. Do you remember when we we're on the, the uh, Fahrenheit scale? That's the same as zero degrees Fahrenheit. It's just not that cold. So I got in the habit of saying minus 18 in, in uh, Edmonton is a, is a nice day. Yeah, no, it, it actually is. If it's sunny. It's a, it's a yeah day. yeah and there's no wind right 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 yeah well heather tell us a little bit about yourself your background your education yep uh so i am a materials engineer i did my bachelor's and my phd at the university of alberta and my phd program was well i got i got sucked into materials engineering um, I'll kind of go back to high school. Why I was, you know, in the high school, everybody in my high school class thought I would end up either in political science or in drama, um, some sort of fine arts um, program. And because I loved those classes, I did well, but I, I also loved the sciences. And uh, so I applied to university and the engineering gave me the biggest scholarship. So I was like, huh, maybe I should check this engineering thing out. <laughs> I have no engineers in my family. Um, so I didn't really know what engineering was about. And so, yeah, got the scholarship and went, oh, well, this seems kind of interesting. Oh, you hmm. can maybe get a you know, job after only four years, I don't have to go do a PhD. That that sounds good because I, I don't yep. think I want to do a PhD. So I'll mm-hmm. I'll uh, you know go straight in and 
That that seems appropriate. And well, I can always do drama and and political science as a hobby. I but I can't really do science as a hobby. So true, well. very true. Kind of need true. that lab, right? Yeah. So I was like, all right, I'll I'll check this out. So into engineering I went, and I was fortunate enough to get hired as a summer student. Um, right after high school by a professor, Doug Ivey, and um, I worked in his lab and I got to make transmission electron microscopy samples. And that was wow. great fun. Yeah. So I spent, you know, you'd spend 40 hours making something that was three millimeters in diameter and a hundred <laughs> nanometers, no, sorry, 40 nanometers thick because it had to be electron transparent. <laughs> and if you dropped that, you were <laughs> really sad. Yeah. Um, but it was a great summer job after after high school. And I really loved the microscopy thing. I really got interested in materials engineering and I was like, oh, this is cool. And I learned that materials engineering was the study of how something's um, structure impacts its properties and how you change the processing to change the structure to change the properties. And I'm like, well, that that's awesome. This has lots mm -hmm. of application. Um, so I went into materials engineering, um, completed my undergrad, and then I was like, and I had the great fortune of because I had worked for a prof, then when I did my co-op terms, um, I got all of these great research jobs as my co-op jobs. And I realized that I really love research. And so since I realized that I really loved research, I realized I actually will need to go back and do that PhD or, or master's. And so I decided to go straight for the PhD, um, skipped the master's, went, went right into the PhD. And um, the part that I was really interested in is I wanted a, a, a program that would allow me to do something that was relevant for, to Alberta and would help me do more on that characterization and microscopy side. So, um, and I had one prof who I, uh, studied under Dr. Tom Etzel, and he was really passionate about secondary resource management. So recovering valuable minerals and valuable products from waste. So that's still a hot topic today. Um, you know, mine wastes are a great yeah. potential source of secondary of, you know, especially the, the older mines, some of those wastes are now yeah. as valuable as some of the newer ore deposits. Um, so I was like, this is fantastic. Um, and then I was really, you know, oil sands was booming at that time. This was back in the early um, 2000s and uh, oil sands was expanding. And there was a company called Titanium Corporation who was trying to extract the titanium and zircon from the oil sands, especially hmm. from froth treatment tailings. And I was like, cool, um, I want to learn more about this. So, but I wanted you know, Doug Ivey, who had hired me as a summer student all those years, I wanted mm -hmm, him to be mm -hmm. one of my supervisors. And he's like, okay. And he's like, okay, you can, you can look at the electron microscopy here, but I'm going to bring in uh, one of my former students, Deepo Omotoso. He works at Canmet. He knows a lot about oil sands and this whole tailings thing. So he should be involved. So he got brought in and he's like, well, you should look at the mineral balance. And I'm like, sure, how hard can that be? And he's like, and and you should look at the clays because they're kind of important. And I'm like, yeah, sure, how hard can that, that be in my naive way? And um, <laughs> then I realized that clays are really complicated. Um, you know, coming from material science, everything is very symmetrical. You know, you're doing X-ray diffraction patterns on things that have very nice, sharp crystal peaks. There's you know, 
they're cubic structures, so the number of degrees of symmetry is high. And then clays are all triclinic. There's like no symmetry. Um, <laughs> everything is, it, 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 they're just, they're messy. And, you know, even the definitions of clay minerals get complicated. And so, but I, I persevered and um, part of my research got funded through the oil sands tailings research facility because of course mm -hmm. I was doing stuff on tailings and then mm -hmm. also looking at clays and I had to listen to all these geotechs talk about their research and I knew nothing about geotechnical engineering but as I listened to them I was like huh you know I, I think you guys maybe should look at the clay I, I think that might be explaining some of your your behavior and year after year nobody was they would they would all talk about maybe they would talk about fines content or they'd talk about their sand content but nobody was talking about their clay content and i was like you know i, I think this might matter so after pursuing my phd for the five years um i realized one that i had become obsessed by clays and obsessed by oil sands tailings um, and two, I had also identified that, yes, we can recover secondary minerals from, from oil sands, from froth treatment tailings, but they're not as pure as we were hoping. So when I, when I first started, um, the big question was, you, when you do x-ray diffraction analysis on these, the titanium that you recover from oil sands tailings, it's it looks like pure titanium. You see rutile and anatase and brookite. Those are the phases you see. And you're mm -hmm. like, great, mm -hmm. this should be pure TiO2. But there was always this iron component. And so they would just lump this in as leucoxine, which isn't really a phase, but they're like, what's going on? So my research actually identified that there were sneaky nanoplatelets of, of hematite that were growing on the uh. same zone axis as the rutile. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. that's what was causing the problem. So sadly, it's at the nanoscale that the iron was incorporated in the structure. Mm. And so, yeah all the all the the chances of uh of a grinding solution being the the yeah, yeah. solution is kind of went out the window there um but yeah I, I i realized that i was obsessed with tailings and obsessed with with clays and so proceeded to find my way out into the industry and i worked for total and i worked for them for five years so they were the french oil and gas company and i got hired into the research group uh, to work on extraction and tailings and water issues so anything related related to oil sands mining did that for a couple of years and then came back um, after my maternity leave and went into tailings planning and that was great i learned so much in that hmm. in that time uh, and then Total decided that they weren't going to pursue their project. And so they left Canada. And so I had to go find another opportunity. And uh, mm -hmm. fortunately, I got to go work at Suncor. And I worked there for a couple of years in their tailings technology development group. Um, and that was fabulous. And uh, then I, I ended up coming to Nate, so the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. Um, where I could pursue that kind of more academic space, really liked mm -hmm. the, the research and um, allowed me to have that breadth of um, getting back into the lab, getting to actually um, see how some of these challenges, we could, we could do the right um, experiments to, to answer those questions that we were having when we were when I was at Total and at Suncor, so rather than just you know observing from afar, I could I could get in there and and help uh, 
design them more. Yeah, yeah. So, so tell on. me a little bit more about Nate. What does what is Nate's assignment? Yeah, so Nate is the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology, and it's a polytechnic. Uh, it really focuses on a polytechnic ed education. We do a lot. We train the um, technologists, technicians, and uh, tradespeople in in Alberta. <laughs> um, and we have an applied research group. So applied research at Nate means we're not looking at the fundamentals, we're looking at what are your problems. So it really is about, can we find a solution to your problems now? So our research tends to be shorter term than a university research. So oftentimes a university research is um, scheduled to a student, right? So you might have a master's student or a PhD student who's gonna spend three to five years working on your problem. Um, at Nate, you'll typically spend sometimes as little as a week and sometimes as much as three years where we work on those problems and, and try and come with very concrete applied solutions. So where we, and, and the nice thing is every single project at Nate has to have that industry partner. So we do, we do no uh, curiosity-based research. Um, unless uh, we can get, um, unless mm -hmm. unless we can find somebody who shares our curiosity from an industry partner who's like, oh, yes, right, this right. this is important. Yeah. Um, so that has that has worked well for me, um, <laughs> mostly because if I think if I were left completely to my own curiosity based research pile, I would probably. Um, never ne never resurface there's too many things i'm interested in uh so having the the partnership works well because now it it gives that direction and it helps go okay are we are we solving this problem are we actually are we delivering on this value so uh, and i like that aspect yeah 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 okay okay so so are, are most of your research projects funded by the oil sands industry um for my, for mine yes i'm in yeah. the center for oil sand sustainability and okay. um, i have an industrial research chair for colleges in the area of oil sands tailings mm -hmm. management so mm -hmm. my partners in that chair are cosia so all of the operating companies in the mining space as well as um, the main chemical um manufacturers so BASF, SNF, and Chimera have all contributed to my chair. Uh, Graymont as a lime producer, um, so they've yeah. contributed to my chair. Some of the consultants, so Thurber is a is a contributor to my chair, as are some of the uh, labs. So Bureau Veritas is a, a commercial lab, and they're also a contributor to my chair. Um, and so with with all of that kind of consortium of people who are either directly the owners of the tailings problem or um, people really working towards solving those problems um, it's kind of a unique place to be and I get to work on a lot of different aspects of the problem and try and synergize to get to some more solutions so my big hairy audacious goal is um, by 2030 mm -hmm. I would like to see an economically and environmentally 
uh, sustainable solution to the fluid fine tailings issue um, implemented in an oil sands tailings site, which means that our, you know, if we talk about the problem of oil sands fluid tailings, there's 1.3 billion cubic meters of fluid tailings uh, stored within the uh, oil sands region. I think that I don't remember the number offhand. It's something like 1.35, 1.34 billion cubic meters, mm -hmm. and that's only and and that number is only the amount that isn't meeting ready to reclaim criterion. Yeah. And our ready to reclaim criterion in oil sands is still fluid. So if you include mm. the ready to reclaim criterion, we have about 1.6 billion cubic meters of fluid tailings stored in our various tailings deposits. And the typical method of recovery for those tailings deposits has been you know, if you look at Pond 1, or if you look at Pond 5, how those uh, at Suncor, how those have been reclaimed so far is you remove the really fluid part, you move it to a different deposit, and then you fill it in with sand, and then you're good. Now, that's still, an, a, there was still a lot of engineering and a lot of effort that had to go in to make that yeah. work. Mm -hmm. Like, don't want to trivialize that task at all um, but it did mean that you're moving these very very fluid high clay streams yeah to be dealt with for later on and so Just, now yeah kind of kicking the can down the road exactly so now we're at that point where um, new technologies have come in place uh, there's a lot more flocculation in the industry so now you take that fluid um, material that's very clay rich and you apply a polymeric flocculant that gets it from that 30% solids to about 50% solids. And we can do that within that, you know, less than a year time frame. That's great. That halves the volume, right? So yeah, it's yeah. a huge benefit. But now you have something that's the consistency of jello that mm -hmm. we're trying to reclaim. 50% mm -hmm. solids is not going to get us a terrestrial landform. Yeah. And so we're left with this research gap of how do we go from, I have 40 meters of material that is the consistency of jello um, in a deep cohesive deposit. Can I still use the same capping techniques as I did with a, you know, sandy, silty material? Well, probably not. Um, you know, doesn't doesn't quite work that way. So, what what can I do? What are the options there? And and that's really where the industry has been focused. There, there's a recent deep deposit design guide that came out that was a really great summary of the state of practice of our current technologies used to close um, some of these deposits. But again, when you look in detail at those case histories that are presented, most of those are for sandier deposits. So now that we're getting into these increasingly clay rich deposits, there's a lot of questions about how much will they settle? Is it reasonable to expect a clay-rich deposit to achieve an 85% solids content when you look at natural clay deposits and they're at like 70% solids, right? Maybe that's a better end target that we should be expecting our deposits to, to get to. And that has huge implications for, say, consolidation predictions, right? If you're assuming that final consolidation occurs at 85% solids versus 70% solids, well, now your timeframes are 
much much larger right so yeah, it's yeah. it's a very interesting space to play in it's a there's there's lots of things that we're learning so i i love it so you're you're you, i think you're saying that there's hope there's, yes there's, there's something that's going to help us with that one point whatever billion 1.6 billion cubic meters yeah yeah and and i think that's to me that's really the key message is you know we, there's absolutely a lot of criticism of the oil sands industry and a lot of it is yeah. justified but mm -hmm. there's also been a lot of work done by the oil sands industry and we we need to recognize and celebrate that oh for but sure we also need to make sure that we're not taking our foot off the gas in terms of figuring out these problems and we also need to not get distracted by saying oh well we've solved this because you've solved it in one context it doesn't mean you've solved mm -hmm. all of the pieces there's a lot of very site-specific challenges um, each deposit is unique each deposit has its own quirks that we have to take into account and figuring out what technology applies is is challenging um, and so I I'm an optimist I think there is hope and I I really want to work to achieve that. I, I want this to be a my generation problem, not a my son's generation problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 hence why my deadline is 2030 because he turns 18 <laughs> in 2030. So gotcha. Gotcha. by t by the time he's 18 and old enough to vote and old enough to do that sort of thing, I I want us to be like, yep. We've, we've cleaned up this mess. We know how, you know, it, it mm -hmm, won't be completed. Mm -hmm. Like we will still be mm -hmm. in the process of cleaning it up, but at least if we know how to clean it up by then, we're going to be good. Because um, the reality is if we don't figure it out by 2030, then probably that, that duty to figure it out will be on the taxpayer and will be on his generation. And I think that is not acceptable. Yeah, yeah. So... I think there, I mean, there's been just a lot of different things that we can do. Um, and there's things that I think we could do better. You know, there are, there are things if we just accept that clays will be clays and you stop trying to turn clays into sand <laughs> and you're going to find much better solutions than uh, kind of just barreling forth with the, with the notion that, Clays are just smaller sand particles, because they're not. Yeah, yeah. So what kind of clays are in the oil sand? Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, you, you've seen the, it's, it's, it's a pity that, you you know, we can't uh, show, show the video reactions. I'm sure all yeah. of my um, teammates would have going uh-oh you, you don't want to ask that question she's she's about to to jump off a cliff here on things that she's interested in um and it's true so the clays and oil sands we have actually reasonably well-behaved clays or at least on first blush we have reasonably well-behaved clays and this is one of the the journeys that's interesting when you talk about clays so most of the clays and oil sands fall into three categories. So you have kaolinite, mm -hmm. illite, mm -hmm. and mixed layer clays. So 
kaolinite is a very well understood clay. Yeah, you know, yeah. we we buy lots of that from various places. It's really well understood and people are like, oh, great. So when the first surveys of the mineralogy were done in oil sands, they were like, oh, it's kaolinite and illite. No problem. This stuff will settle out. You have no worries. But <laughs> there is this whole mixed layer clay thing. And mixed layer clays are, so clays themselves are, are problematic because actually you can't define them very well. There are these lovely solid solution series. So clays are in are basically always these uh, transformation projects. Uh, products, right? So clays are transformed from either volcanic ash or from sedimentary rock, right? Things have, yeah. you know, ground out. And mm -hmm. They're mm -hmm. they're the detritus. They're the the part there, and and it's basically clays. Or so rock plus water gives you clay with time. Mm -hmm. That that's mm -hmm. the the basic equation, and really all of the clay minerals can and will turn into each other depending on what the environment that they're in and that's special and makes yeah. you know characterization <laughs> challenging because you're like okay well where do i draw the boundary so the mixed layer clays are basically like okay we have some stuff that's behaving well it's not swelling we're happy and then you have a certain percentage of swelling layers where and so when clays swell that means they absorb more water than you would expect from their external surfaces. Basically yeah. the internal surfaces of the clay can now expand and take water. So instead of having a surface area of like 25 to 100 meters squared per gram, you can get surface areas of 800 meters squared per gram. So this is really significant because if you have a material that is 25 meters squared per gram and you have say a nanometer of water on each surface well you're going to be in the you know 80 percent solids phase mm -hmm. if you have something that's 800 meters square per gram and you have a nanometer of um water on each surface well you are at a significantly lower solids content and i don't have the math up in front of me so don't quote me on the exact numbers uh, i can sure, do that. Sure. i have done that calculation <laughs> but you know it's something like 50 percent solids right it it's dramatically different um and that is the beauty slash challenge of clays so i like to use the analogy about oil sands clays that oil sands clays are to a georgia kaolinite what cards what what a what a used Kleenex is to cardstock. So hmm. Georgia Kaolinite has these nice thick booklets, well-defined, big particles, relatively speaking. They're nice blocky polyhedrons. They're crystal white, like they're, they're pure white. There's almost no iron contamination on those surfaces. There's no organics on the surfaces. They're very well, like they're the textbook Kaolinite mineral oil sands clays are and and oh the average um thickness of those stacks is like you know eight to ten nanometer or microns so they're they're pretty big um and and you know you might have like booklets that are yeah so they're they're fairly big and blocky like eight microns 
that's big. Well, sense Canaanites, they're like, uh, not very well. They're, they're not super crystalline, so there's often a lot of disorder. So we have a lot of iron that substitutes in um, to the surfaces of the kaolinite. Now, iron isn't supposed to substitute into kaolinite. Kaolinite is defined as having no isomorphic substitution. But, mm. you know, because everything can turn into everything else, that's not actually true for all kaolinite. So okay. this shows up as kaolinite, but it has some of these what we call chromophores. So they turn the kaolinite from a white to kind of a orangey brownish color. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Or a gray color is another, uh, depending on the different chromophores you can have. And then oil sands also is covered in organics, right? So the bitumen had come in yeah, and coated yeah. the surface of those clays. So instead of having nice clear white clay surfaces you have bitumen coated crap with a whole bunch of iron in substitutions and then it those like to um, attract very small iron um, oxide hydroxides that kind of hang around there as well and they're really small so the average um, you know instead of having a booklet that's a hundred layers thick you might have a booklet that's three layers thick or 10 layers thick so you're looking at much much finer particles yeah, so again yeah. the difference between cardstock and mm -hmm. a tissue right yeah 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 both are paper both are paper products mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but very different behavior and so that's yeah. the same thing that's happening in oil sands is you have this the used Kleenex of clay. Um, and so, of course, it behaves very differently from what you would expect a, a standard kaolinite to do. Um, one, one fun, I'll, I'll, I'll share this, one of my, my students, um, he's exploring some of the properties of mixing clay uh, tailings with, with other products. Um, and I had encouraged him to see, okay, well, what would happen if you mixed your material with, with kaolinite or mixed it with bentonite? And he's like, yeah, I'm going to increase my activity by, instead of having some of this fluid tailings, I'm going to just replace, because he had a sandy mixture, so he, he reduced the amount of fluid tailings and increased the amount of clay, thinking, great, I've increased my fines content, therefore I've increased the, the activity of this process. And uh, then he was like, there must be something wrong with the measurements. The uh, activity went down. What's what's going on? And I'm like, hmm, that's because kaolinite has an MBI of like three and your FFT that you started with had an MBI of seven. So you've just replaced it with something that's <laughs> half as active as what you had to start. Yeah, Congratulations. Yeah. This is why MBI or activity matters. So yeah, that's the one thing that I like so one of the one of the things that i've been passionate about there's many is this <laughs> methylene blue index so it's a method hmm. of measuring um if it's the pain index so how problematic is your clay going to be uh, it is a really good measure of how much your material is going to want to hold water um, so it's a convolution of your cation exchange capacity and your surface area um, and the nice thing about it is it's um it scales with your your mass. So if you have a lot, right? So it's a it's a measurement that you get as a milli equivalence per hundred gram. Um, if you have 
if you take something that's an MBI of five and you mix it with something that's an MBI of zero in a one-to-one -one mixture, you will have an MBI of 2.5, right? So it's mm -hmm. easy to do some kind of ballpark estimates with. And it seems to correlate well with things like your liquidity index um, and like your Atterberg limit properties. So it's a, it's a, it's a simple measurement that we can do. You can, uh, only need a few grams of material. It is still, I mean, there is still some um, operator uncertainty or uh, subjectivity to the measurement. And we're actually working on, we have an automated method that we've uh, built. So we actually have a robot prototype that we've built to okay. automate this method. It's very okay. exciting because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, we're trying to take that subjectivity out. Um, but it is, you know, it, it, it does work to correlate to a whole lot of these different properties. And um, that was some of the research that I had done at Suncor was um, we could show that my MBI, um, so the, if you calculated your methylene blue index and then you can convert that to a, a measure of surface area effectively, um, and then you could calculate how many, how much water you have per surface of clay. Um, so they use it as a clay to water ratio. And you can see that as your clay to water ratio increases, your strength increases. So there was a, a, a relationship that we developed there um and that was that's been pretty consistent for and you know for all the work that i've done since it's like yep your remolded strength you can predict very clearly from this clay to water ratio um certainly as long as you're you're below a liquidity index of probably about point or sorry you're above a liquidity index of about point seven something like that i wouldn't i wouldn't extend it to the full plastic range yeah, yeah, then you get yeah. into different mechanisms but when it's saturated it, it certainly behaves it, it uh, predicts very well so um yeah lots of lots of interesting bits and pieces that you can get so my my current theme is i think more people should measure methylene blue index i started out in 2008 going to the first international oil sands tailings conference and nobody had measured clay um, and I got up after every talk pretty much and was like, hey, have you have you measured the clay content? <laughs> have you thought about this? Mm -hmm. And after four years of me asking by 2012, I was getting people standing up and giving their presentations and saying, well, we measured the clay content. We don't know what it means, but if we don't put it in here, Heather's <laughs> going to get up and ask. <laughs> we know Heather's going to ask. <laughs> exactly. And so then I would start getting up and explaining, well, how, how it worked and why it was useful. So now I'm happy to report that most people report MBI and more people actually understand how to use it, which is exciting. So it's it's definitely been a tool that's been adopted. There's still challenges. There's a lot of ways to do it really badly so that that's an issue, um, but it has been adopted and it has really helped to understand the properties of the tailings in oil sands. So yay! And now I'm on a on a crusade to spread the gospel of clay beyond oil sands. <laughs> I, I have a um, um, a couple of great um, partners in crime, so to speak, on this front. Uh, so Lois Boxel, who you've interviewed before, mm -hmm, she's mm -hmm. um, looking at how we can apply that on the geotechnical side and yeah. then andrew vietti who's a, a oh, yeah. slurry expert in yeah, south africa in south africa yeah 
Yeah, so he uses MBI a lot to understand those tailings process properties and, um, you know, affect dosage and stuff. So we, we know that this applies beyond oil sands. So MBI, it's where it's at. Everybody <laughs> should be doing it. If you need well, more information, <laughs> come talk to us. That's right. That's right. Oh, well, oh that, that reminds me, before I forget, so if any listeners want to get in contact with you for whatever reason, if they have some research they want you to oversee or whatever, how would they get a hold of you? Um, probably best to either find me on LinkedIn or yeah. to um, email me. Um, and my email is hkaminsky at nate.ca. I will preface that by saying my response times are pretty terrible right now. Um, because I do, I I triage, right? So yeah. I have to deliver on something. I will ignore my emails for days while I finish the main thing that I need to do. And then I will go through a flurry where I respond to everybody and um, and get back to people. So I do answer all of my emails just slowly. Um, yeah. And that's part of that whole, you know, Stephen Covey, start with the end in mind and like, prioritization so it's my attempt to not drown in my passion of i want to do all of the things i can't do all of the things yeah yeah i I used to work with a a guy who um when he was really keeping his head down he put kind of one of those out of office notifications on his email but it would say Mm -hmm. if it's really important give me a call yes so it's kind of kind of the same thing yes yeah and and uh I, I think I should actually probably put on a perpetual out of office, which says, if, you know, if this is, if, if you are a client, you will hear back from me short, more, more, more quickly. Right, right. If, if you want to be, please contact these people because they will help and they yeah. will book my time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I am, I am definitely struggling with that. My passion exceeds my capacity. So. Yeah, yeah. Now, you mentioned Stephen Covey, and it, it's that quadrant that has the important and urgent, and yes. not every not everything that's urgent is important. A lot of emails. Yes. Are urgent, but they're not important. Correct. So, so yeah, I, I very much try and prioritize my time, especially as a researcher, in the important, not urgent category. And the yeah. and and that's because you know we're not going to be able to fix your dam problem right now, right? Like if, if, if your dike is going up too high, yeah, I'm not the person to talk to. But if you're like, well, I think in the long term, I might have this problem and I want to get ahead of it. Well, that's really where the sweet spot is for what we do and, 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 and where we're working on is, okay, we're, we're having these reoccurring problems. How can we get to that root of the problem? Let's let's really understand this, right? When you're in that important and urgent, you're finding a solution that fixes the problem right now, but it might be a Band-Aid or it might be a stitch, right? And what we're trying to get to is some more of those root causes and, and you know, more, you know, or you're paying a lot of money. <laughs> That's the other thing. So we're trying to find some of those solutions that might be a little bit cheaper, but take longer or, you know, yeah. get yeah. to those root causes. So, Right. Yeah. So in terms of uh, people, something that's in the important but not urgent quadrant is your heart health, like going to the gym. Yes. Certainly, certainly it's not urgent. But it's certainly important in the, in the in the long run. It's yep. you know, 
way yeah, up that's, there. That's that's another one that I've been prioritizing lately. Uh, my dad is 94, and and this last year he's uh, got had dementia and gone into long term care, um, mm. and it really helped. And, and he has been a lifelong advocate of really taking care of himself. And yeah. I can see how how effective that was. I mean, he was still doing handstands at 85. He was oh still my gosh. doing, um, you know, a, a lot of those one arm balances and things at 93. Right. So it's it has, you know, the last year has been a decline, but he still has a lot of that core strength. He's still like all of the things that he did to take care of himself. You can see, wow, this, this really did make a difference. And it's uh, impacted me to go, oh crap, I'm in my forties now. I guess I have to pay attention to this. (laughs) So yeah. You know, you you look at somebody like that and you say, wow, I hope I'm like that at his age. Well, you're not going to be like that at his age unless you start start it now yes and my 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 dad's 91 and he still goes to the gym and he still plays golf exactly and that's that's fantastic right very similar yeah yeah and and you need to do that it is you know i don't like exercise like i am not i am i was i was a bookworm i was the you know like i mean give me a stage and i'm a little different like yay (laughs) stage i'm a bit of a prima donna in case you couldn't tell by the rambling um and I love my books, so I liked to stay inside. I like to play video games, but yeah, it's important to go and and move our bodies. And I'm I'm slowly I'm slowly finding my way to to better health and uh, and better living from that. So um, I I make a point of getting my you know 10,000 steps a day and my 150 active zone minutes. Uh, yeah. Data. Yeah, good, good for you. But the the wearables have been the big uh, advantage for me because I, I can't fool myself if there's data. It's like, yep, look, this is what the data says about how much you've been moving. But I'm tired. <laughs> yeah, but you didn't yeah. actually move. Go, go yeah, get on the yeah. treadmill. Yeah, and your wearable starts to like uh, exercise shame you. Mm-hmm. Like, you didn't close your ring today. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Uh, it is an effective motivator for me so yeah yeah it's all about figuring out what you will do yeah well it's it's been a joy talking with you i think we could probably go on for another hour but i I think we better wrap uh, it up yeah close it for for today and really appreciate you coming on and sharing some of your experiences and, and knowledge and uh just uh conversation too yeah absolutely and uh, i hope people take some good things away keep an eye out for if I, I will leave people with this parting thought of if your tailings pond is going up faster than you expected you probably have a clay problem <laughs> yeah. um, if your water uh, is looking more muddy than you expected it's probably a clay problem if your <laughs> thickener doesn't get to the underflow density that you expected mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. probably a clay problem um, and yeah understanding it means there are ways to help you so yeah MBI. yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, very, very good advice. Well, Heather, I appreciate it. I, I know you're a busy person. Uh, it's Friday. Hopefully you can take some time off over the weekend and enjoy the, the couple days off. Oh, for sure. All, All right. right. Well, thanks. Well, thanks, Brown. Yeah, thanks a lot, Heather.
Well, that's it. I'm Brian, and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian. Until next time, keep on rockin'.